Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian, online training and nutrition coach, and owner of James Roberts Fitness. You can find more of my content by going to my website, fitamputee.co.uk. But before we get started with today's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners. And if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Joseph Agu. Joseph is a nutrition consultant specializing in nutrition for high-performance physique athletes and people wanting to feel more confident about their bodies. Joe's appreciation for proper nutrition began from an early age when he was a national-level kickboxer and a desire to be as lean as Bruce Lee. As such, a career in nutrition was the obvious career path. He has been helping people achieve their goals for almost a decade now, having built a solid foundation with his undergraduate degree in sports and exercise sciences and master's degree in sports nutrition, both attained at the University of Chester. But more recently, Joseph was appointed as assistant professor in sports and exercise medicine at the University of Nottingham, where he leads the MSc sports and exercise nutrition module. So welcome on to the show, Joseph. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. So before we delve into today's topic, Joseph, can you talk us about what was kind of the uh, burning desire to get into nutrition in the first place? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. So, yeah, we had a bit of a chat before before coming on air and, yeah, we both studied at the, the University of Chester and it was um, during during my time at undergrad when I was doing um, a degree in sport and exercise science that I, because physiology was my main passion initially, and then I started reading more into the, the nutrition side of things, and that made me want to, um, yeah, want to sort of take that off and, and, and do that as a career, either as a practitioner or as a researcher. And yeah, everything just sort of came together then um, as you go on through your career. But um, I, I did sort of experience, experiment a lot with nutrition as a young age as well. So I was uh, a national level kickboxer. So I used to, well, you you soon realize that nutrition and good nutrition can have an impact on how you perform and how your body changes as well. So um, like one of my idols through that was Bruce Lee, like pretty much everyone else who does martial arts and yeah, just trying to reach a sort of sit. Well, it's difficult to get to Bruce Lee levels of leanness, but to trying to get, pretty lean by modifying diet and um, and exercising accordingly so that yeah that was probably the main the main influences in terms of getting into nutrition and getting the interest in just sport and and sport science in general but you talk of bruce lee being your idol as to why you wanted to get into nutrition and to that extent the physical components of it but if we talk of him as the role model nutrition isn't what it is today back in say the 80s when you're talking about him being that role model how is he able to get in that kind of physique when the the actual knowledge of nutrition be it scientifically is what it is today yeah it's it's a good question it's um i suppose it's getting at the the idea how far knowledge has come whether that be what's published or what's been passed on just through word of mouth and through trial and error. And 
if we break it down in terms of what would Bruce Lee need to have done to got in that that physical condition, well, he's, he's going to one have to have been in a, an energy deficit for a protracted period of time and consistently as well to obviously strip away that level of body fat. Um, and yeah, we, we know from his training is he, he detailed his training quite um, religiously in terms of the sort of strength and conditioning he had in terms of barbell exercises and um, sort of more calisthenic stuff on top of that. And then I think he, he mentioned that he ran sort of six miles every morning as well. So you can you can see how that deficit is created. Um, and I think he's was one of those people as well that just never sat still and, and, and just carried on with everything, never really took a day off. So you can really see that level of determination there that enabled that sort of continual um, dieting and, and that sort of attracted energy, uh, negative energy balance to, to get to the level of physique. But I think in, in terms of training, um, so if, if we look at, say, the bodybuilders of the 70s and that Arnie and, and all those guys, they... What, what people are doing today isn't that much difference. The main difference between, say, pro bodybuilding is probably the more of the anabolics, steroid side of things, rather than the training and nutrition. People were consuming um, three plus grams per kilo. So I was, I was reading actually some of the old protein research, like the, um, Peter Lemon and, and some of the, the old Stu Phillips stuff, and, and they were talking about bodybuilders even the sort of late 80s were consuming upwards of three grams per kilo so high protein diets have have long been known to improve muscle mass and improve body composition as a whole um and if, if you're adding in enough energy then to support training and you're performing a lot of volume which is combined with sort of intensity is one of the main drive well is the main drive of, of muscular development then you can see why people in those days had remarkable levels of development and, and, and the work ethic on top of that as well it's um it, as you know you can have all the knowledge you want and, and unless you apply that and apply that religiously you're not going to achieve the the goals you're looking for and and yeah, like um, it's it's a matter of just applying it rather than just um, thinking, yeah, I'm going to do this. Um, if, if say if you're you've got your diet perfect, but you're training pretty poorly, um, you're not going to get the same adaptations if someone had a relatively modest diet but really put the work in, in the gym. Um, the training far outweighs the the nutrition in terms of the in terms of what you're going to get out of it in terms of physique development. But you talked about Bruce Lee religiously never having a day off. Would that not have a negative effect on, say, somebody, if they did want to copy that kind of method of training, have a, a negative effect on maximal muscle hypertrophy? Because at some point or other, you may come to, well, worst case scenario, overtraining. How do you kind of kind of get to the way of training that Bruce Lee had religiously day in, day out, but then still manage to accomplish your goals of maximizing muscle hypertrophy? Um, I think using the, the Bruce Lee example, it is goal 
wasn't necessarily to just um, just maximise his level of leanness. It was also to perform well to endure during sort of combat and, and so on, and then later on in his career more um, filmmaking and, and, and things like that, and being able to present that that physique because he was never he was um, he was never massively muscular i think he was like 135 pounds or something like that and around five foot seven so the level of muscular development isn't great but the, the the actual definition and the um and the sort of hardness of the muscle was you, you could tell it was extremely well developed but in, in terms of maximizing things i think if if he was around now what would be best is it is if that that training level of training was period is that periodized it's, it's not necessarily my area I'm more nutrition but i think yeah you you can't go all out every day without needing a needing a break and if, if you look at athletes and look at your like yourself there was um you no doubt had to periodize your training throughout the calendar year to try to peak at different not only peak within that given year, but also peak within a given Olympic cycle and so on. So um, you can periodize just either your training sort of on the, the sort of meso macro cycles and so on. So and and then ultimately trying to drag that over to a, a four year period. So it's uh, I don't think that's something that Bruce Lee really considered studying as uh, training and, and things and and what I can remember from, from reading when I was younger. So. But I think you you raise a good point there, Joseph. But then, fortunately for me, back in those days as an athlete, I didn't have to periodize as well. So I, I'm quite fortunate. Whereas nowadays, I'm on the other kind of the other side of the coin, doing it for the 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 clients themselves. So I can kind of see what difficulties. Well, when you were actually within that profession yourself. Yeah. kind of the constraints you had to actually do at times you've got to get that fine balance between peak getting people to peak at the right time but not pushing them too far yeah um yeah i, th- I think in terms of yeah from what i've read about sort of periodiza- periodization and, and sort of periodizing training if I think it depends on the level of intensity of, of training. If if you're training well within your recuperative abilities, there's no reason to periodize whatsoever. But it's, um, yeah, if if you're going close to 100 percent week in week out, week out, there's there's only so long that your body can take that sort of punishment. So I suppose you do have to step off the gas a little bit then. But it, it also depends on what you're trying to what you're trying to achieve and what and what those um what the sport what the actual sport is i suppose but um yeah it's uh it's an interesting one and it's it's probably a, a conversation to be had with an snc coach rather than rather than me i wouldn't want to <laughs> um yeah be schooled on the on, on the comments well that's, that's very true but coming back onto the nutritional side of things now joseph when you're trying to estimate caloric, calorific requirements for muscle gain, what surplus is actually optimal? It's, it's a good question. And if, if we break down uh, nutrition for hypertrophy in general, that's um, 
total calories is going to be the most important factor, um, closely followed by total protein. And, and the, the idea, um, some people have sort of countered this as to say, well, what if you're consuming all the calories but very little protein? Well, in reality, protein scales quite um, well, very well with total calories anyway. So the, the more calories someone consumes. So if, if you look at the like an obese American, for example, they'll be consuming a hell of a lot of protein. They'll be consuming well above 150 grams per day um, just by default, by the sheer volume of food they're getting in. So, um, yeah, focusing on total calories would be paramount. In terms of the quantity, um, there's actually no research that I'm aware of that you actually need a surplus to gain muscle. It, but we know that a, a deficit does hamper muscle gains or the potential for muscle gains. And that's one of the reasons why protein requirements do go up during a deficit. Um, but having said that, it's probably it's probably required. But then the extent of the surplus is going to be, I suppose, dictated by a, a number of variables. And if, if we get someone at energy balance, um, say if someone was wanting to gain muscle in their, in their maintenance calories of two and a half thousand per day. If we say a, a 10% surplus, um, there's, there's every chance that that surplus could be eaten up by a, an ad- adaptation and non-exercise activity. So their new maintenance could be 2,750 just by virtue of increasing their calories. And, and that comes, and that sort of opinion really is driven by, um, a study by Levine, I think it was 2001, where they overfed subjects by a thousand calories a day, and some of them offset that surplus by around 800 calories, um, whereas some of them didn't really adapt to that surplus at all, and, and just gained the, the difference in terms of in terms of body fat. Um, so the, the short the short answer really is we don't know the extent. I think. My general go-to is to increase by around 10 or 15% and then see how their body responds to it. So we track uh, weight, we track um, skin folds, track girth measures, and then keep them on that for, for say, two or three weeks, see where they are, uh, reassess, and we can we can further adjust that level of calories depending on their, how they respond. And I don't think there's a better way of doing things beyond that because everybody everybody's metabolism is well it is going to be unique in terms of um people you can sort of complementalize people in terms of people who adapt high low and, and, and so on but in general there's no there's no real way of predicting how somebody's going to respond to a given level of surplus you've just got to you've got to implement it see what happens and then adjust accordingly i think that would be the, the main um the main outcome or the main thing that you'd look for. But I think around 10 or 15% would be a good starting point. Or maybe even if it is someone who's had a history of not, like let's say if you've got your typical hard gainers who's, who's had always had a, an issue of gaining weight um, and even they, if they've recorded their intakes and stuff, because it could be the fact that they're over-reporting their intakes and they're not eating enough anyway. Um, but if it's if it's one of those sort of people, then maybe up, up to around 20% of a, over there sort of estimated maintenance. But yeah, I think the best way is just to just to try and see and, and see how, it, how you respond to it. 
Because there's always going to be an error, error within that estimation anyway, so it's it's worth just, but you know, like you say, adjusting. You saying there, Joseph, when when people accounting for overestimation, well, in this day and age, well, I, I know there's a complexity of even any app, fitness app out there, that people are going to get fed up of recording things, but if they can get their self in the right mind frame to be able to record it, I don't know, be it uh, MyFitnessPal or whatever it may be of, of that nature, would that actually help to, for them to be able to estimate their maintenance level a little bit better? Yeah, it's um, if, if someone is tracking and they're doing that um, religiously, so if they're entering everything, weighing everything and putting it through MyFitnessPal, there's some some foods will be off, like my, my fitness pal is notorious for like erroneous data and you can get the difference between say an apple, one could be 150 calories, one will be around sort of 70, 80, which is probably close to the to what it would really be. Um, but I think if someone's an experienced dieter, they can usually see straight away whether there's an error in terms of what my fitness pal is telling them. But let's say, for example, that everything is entered correctly, everything's weighed and everything that someone's lips is entered in and that, that's all worked out and if someone's tracking their body weight alongside that and their body composition they can get a good idea then of their maintenance calorie requirements far better than any prediction equation because they because well, essentially what maintenance is what calories are going to maintain a given a given body weight and there's going to be a range of calories that sit within that it isn't just a, a, a specific number that's going to be yeah, like rounded up to the nearest 10 or whatever, it's going to be within a, you, you could eat within plus or minus 100 or so and, and, and be within a, around maintenance. You, your body will adapt to a, to a small degree around that. But um, yeah, you, you're going to get there better with a, with tracking and, and measuring body weight than, it, than if you just used a prediction equation. And now just coming to the importance of macronutrient intake, what is the effect that, be it if you, or on the flip side, are deficient in, in some macronutrients or over uh, abundant and taking it, what would be the hormonal effects of one versus the other? Um, in terms of the hormonal effects, I suppose the, yeah, I, I'm not sure the hormonal effects would be something that would be necessarily the the aim of, of macronutrient programming. But although, in terms of dietary fat intake, if, if fat intake was was very low, um, like say some of the bodybuilders in the '80s, where they just consume, say, chicken, rice, and and, and broccoli, whatever, so there's there's going to be very minimal fat. That can have an effect on, say, testosterone production because um, a certain level of fat in the diet is going to be required because it's, it's an essential nutrient um, there's probably little chance that a bodybuilder is ever going to be deficient in protein because they yeah that's if you ask any bodybuilder um, their favorite macro is going to be it's going to be protein and they yeah they can't get weight to get out of the gym nowadays with the, the shakers and so on so um, carbohydrate it's it's possible that someone could underconsume that, but if someone's deliberately trying to gain muscle, then it's unlikely unless they're deliberately going for a ketogenic approach. And if they are doing that, then 
Um, something like thyroid output might be affected to a degree and, and just training intensity in general, but I think training intensity would, would rank higher in terms of concerns with a, with a low carbohydrate diet for a bodybuilder and who, who wants to, to gain muscle. Um, I, I think just uh, assuming protein's high sort of in the region of around 1.8 to around 2.5 grams per kilo, which is um, there might not be that much benefit beyond 1.8 unless protein quality is low. So say if they're vegetarian or a vegan, for example, but um, yeah, there's certainly no harm of going up to those sort of regions of, of protein intake. It makes sure that everything's everything's covered in terms of your bases, and then the rest of the diet would be a fairly balanced split of um, carbohydrate and fat. Probably leaning slightly more towards carbohydrate because that's going to have more use in terms of fueling, training, and and so on. That the actual fat requirements aren't massively high. But um, yeah, that would be my my comments on it. I think the, the aim is to consume enough protein and then trying to worry about um, fueling training and then everything else tends to fall into place. But would you not agree that maybe, oh God, you could probably say as a society as a whole across the globe now, we are probably not too dependent on carbon. We've become overly um, cons- consuming of it. So how would you kind of do the flip side of that to rebalance somebody's diet because obviously most people are not consuming enough protein when you actually analyze the diet. It's generally carbohydrate is probably higher than people actually expect. Yeah, so that, um, yeah, that's a good question. If you're taking someone who's like a complete beginner and they just want to pack on muscle and, and do that as quickly as possible, it's likely that such individual would be eating normally um, or according to what most people would eat. So, um, and, and, and when I say, say when I first meet an athlete and, and, and as you'll know, athletes all haven't got perfect diets, which people seem to think they have. They um, often rely on their genetics to get, to get where they want and their diets can be quite poor. And, and the main fixes that have to be made is, is, um, an increase in protein and a reduction in fat, that carbohydrate tends to be fine because um, especially if they're in an event which excess body fat is going to affect performance, they, they aren't overly consuming anything. It's usually just a, a swap of protein and, and, and fat that tends to fix most people's diets. Um, yeah, that, that would be my my comments on that. I think it, it, it depends if, if someone's, if you're looking at the obese, then probably carbohydrates and, and and calories across the board are going to be high. But I wouldn't necessarily would, would be disproportionately high in favour of carbohydrates. And if we look at the say the, the food availability data of, of, of the US and the UK over the past thirty years, it has generally been an overall increase in calories, which seems to explain the obesity epidemic rather than any particular macronutrient and. If, if any macronutrient is to blame, which, which it isn't, and then added fats seem to have, have increased um, disproportionately. If, 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 if you could blame a single, a single macronutrient in terms of the disproportionate increase. But, yeah, it's, it's generally an increase across the board, and, and that does include protein. But like you say there, Joseph, 
it's the increase of actually total calories that's gone up that has caused um, the increase in obesity. So why has the influx of, say, keto dieting and intermittent fasting become so popular? Um, it, it's an interesting one. Maybe it's just the time of, um, yeah, just the time we're in. It's um, if, if you look at the, the 90s and sort of even the sort of early 2000s, it's, it's been about lower fat. Um, but then if you go back to the 80s, there was the, the whole Atkins diet, which was a essentially a ketogenic diet, um, yeah, high fat, sort of moderate protein, low carb. So it, it does tend to sort of go around in circles a lot of these types of diets because there's only three macronutrients. So there's only so much you can do with them and not nobody really recommends low protein. Um, yeah, vegans tend to justify it, but they don't necessarily recommend it um so it's it's usually an interplay of fat and carbohydrate somewhere or and and now like you say more fasting protocols so whether that be alternate day fasting um doing like a five two approach so you've got five normal days and then two super low days or even um yeah sort of same day fasting like an intermittent like say a a lean gains approach where you fast for 16 hours and eat, eat all your calories within the eight hour window. But they all evolve around the same principle and that's to reduce, reduce overall energy intake. That That's the only way someone can lose body fat. Um, so yeah. So the, I, I did a, a post on Facebook a while ago and if, if you look at any good diet, they've got three things in common and that's one sufficient protein because the weight you do lose, you you want it to be from body fat. Um, two, that it's an energy deficit, and three, that it's sustainable or that something that can be carried on for a protracted period of time. But without those three, then fat loss isn't going to be optimal. Um, well, fat loss might be optimal, but you might lose muscle as well if protein isn't sufficient. But yeah, that they're 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 the real. They're the sort of hard and fast rules of it. There's no real advantage of consuming lower fat versus lower carbohydrate. And um, I suppose if you to make a make a case for one of the others, there's probably a better case to be made for lower fat in terms of body composition. But in general, there's not really that much difference. If you look at the, the data from Kevin Hall, where they've um, controlled people's intakes and and looked at the the body composition changes, it's um, yeah, there doesn't seem to be that much difference in favour of pro, um, lowering fat or carbohydrate, providing that protein is matched and calories are matched. So would you agree that the general populace should maybe, in one facet or other, follow the athlete's model of both training and, we'll say, good nutrition when it actually does exist? Yeah, um, I think the... Well, if, if you look at how food is now, and, and there's, yeah, I suppose there's, there's, there's tons of factors that can explain why people have got heavier over the past sort of few decades, but there's, a, there's an increase in sort of junk food and, and the, the availability of that. And like you've got like home delivery services now where you can, you don't even have to lift a finger barely to, to get a high caloric meal land on your land on your doorstep so it's uh... 
And then and, now, and, and if you're, yeah, sorry, oh, sorry um, if, if you're, and, and I think adding training in as well, that that can, that there's sort of like an inverted U in terms of the the effects or the interplay of, of exercise and hunger as well. If, if someone doesn't exercise at all, that sort of hunger signals and their satiety isn't that well regulated. Where if they reg, uh, exercise regularly, say three to five times a week, then that has got an appetite sort of moderating effect to a point. Whereas if someone was doing a ton of exercise, then that's going to um, obviously drive drive hunger as well. So I think it can help someone adhere to a diet. Um, and I, I think focusing on, for most people who don't want to count calories, because counting calories for most people is always a futile process in the end anyway, because they can't stick to it. I think it's making more educated food choices and um, consuming minimally processed foods, focusing on sort of higher protein, um, increasing their vegetable intake, lowering the, the intake of sort of caloric dense foods like um, sweets and chocolates and cakes and things like that and focusing on, um, yeah, minimally refined foods and, and then adding some exercise in, in the mix as well. And, and the reality is that most people know these things. It's, it's implementing them and doing that consistently. It's just that the, the drive to eat these hyper palatable foods is, yeah, it's not only strong, but the availability of those foods makes it difficult for people not to consume them. Um, especially when they're, yeah, it, it's so cheap and, and easy to do that. And you've got advertising and stuff as well. That's always, yeah, in, in your face and you get these, you drive over from the gym, you've got a KFC hat and things like that. It's, um, it, you can see why it is tempting for a lot of people, especially when they haven't got that basic idea of, um, like, like even skills that we take for granted, like the ability to cook something. There's a lot of people that grow up um, for whatever reason without even the ability to, to prepare simple meals. And I think, yeah, I suppose one of the, it's getting a bit off topic, but I think one of the main things is trying to get in, in schools and teach some more more practical skills for, for children and, and stuff as well, because I think the earlier you can get to people, then the better chance you've got of, of changing people's habits for, you know, for, for when they grow up and so on. And now coming to my penultimate question for you, Joseph. What is the importance of taking amino acid supplementation alongside your normal protein in uh, your normal in protein intake? Um, I, I wouldn't if protein is sufficient and it's um, from good quality sources. I wouldn't say that there's there's any importance of consuming additional amino acids. Um, the, probably the only exception is that if someone's a vegan athlete where they're consuming low lower quality protein so that the essential amino acid and the, and the leucine content isn't as high as a an equal dosed serving of sort of um whey or chicken or beef or something then it might be worth adding some leucine into that meal so maybe consuming a, a couple of grams of leucine prior to consuming that protein containing vegan meal i think that could work well but beyond that if someone's consuming enough protein throughout the day in sort of um say divided across say 
four or five meals or three to five meals, then I don't think there's that much. Well, I, I don't I don't think adding in um, individual amino acids is going to make any real difference. And then when it comes to co-ingestion with other nutrients, would you only say that for people that are of a vegan diet or would that be, you could say that across the board? Um, if, if, if someone was consuming, say, sufficient protein, so let, let's say two grams per kilo for a, for a um, 80K male, for example, so that would be 160 grams of protein per day. If that was over four meals, that would be 40 grams per meal. Um, and if someone was consuming then a high-quality protein source, then that meal is going to have, or that protein served within the meal is going to have at least two and a half grams of, of leucine. So adding further leucine into that probably isn't going to make that much difference, if at all, to that to the muscle protein synthesis response to that meal. So, um, but then, like I said, if it was a vegan, then it'd probably be below, or quite a bit below, two grams of leucine. So adding in some leucine to that meal would would likely help. But um, yeah, and equally, if, if protein was was lower, so say if protein was only one point four grams per kilo. Um, so what would that be? Um, probably around 115 grams. So if that was divided by four meals, then that's going to be um, what, probably around 27, something like that. So then leucine might make a slight difference if it was higher quality protein. But I think the, the first protocol would be to increase the, the amount of protein in, in that diet rather than messing about with, um, with leucine and, and stuff like that. And my final question for you, Joseph, before we wrap up the episode, if we have to summarize, if you had to summarize what we've been speaking about today into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Um, yeah, that's a good one. I should have asked me that before, so I could prepare something. <laughs> um, yeah, I, th- I think in terms of maximizing muscle muscle growth, the, it's important to realize that there's a hierarchy of importance. So the most important thing really is the, the, the caloric intake closely followed by the amount of protein. So if, if you're hitting those, um, so if you're consuming a suitable caloric intake, so around 10% plus of, um, of maintenance and consuming around 1.8 to 2.2 grams per kilo of protein, and then you're spreading that evenly across the day. There's not much more you can do outside of training to facilitate that. Um, yeah, so that, that, that would be my sentence. But one thing on top of that is probably to emphasize the importance of um, sleep and, and training on top of that. Nutrition is just one part of the part of the puzzle in terms of that. The, the most important thing by far is the, the training, um, probably followed by nutrition and then sleep um probably underpins a lot of it because if, if, if you if you're not sleeping well then the likelihood that you're going to go to the gym and train while there's going to be reduced and the likelihood that you're going to stick to your diet is going to be reduced and so on so sleep is an integral part of the, the process so once again joseph it's been my pleasure you having you on the mindset game podcast no it's uh yeah pleasure to mine james if you have enjoyed it enjoyed chatting to you 
And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it would be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast. Thank <laughs> you.